You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here remotely for Real Vision, and I'm reaching out to one of my friends down in Southern California, Marco Papik. We have not spoken in a couple of months um, and have not been on camera in a while. And so the last time you came on to Real Vision, people loved it. It was fantastic to see a, a young, smart guy come in and talk geopolitics and present them in a way that I think challenged the way a lot of people were thinking about it. It's been over a year, actually, since we had you on Real Vision you were right that the U.S. hit a China trade deal when you and I were discussing it, but so much has changed now. And so what's top of mind for you right now? What, what do you most want to focus on? What are you spending most of your time on? Trying to get the markets right, obviously. <laughs> uh, well, other than I, the impossible, what are you attempting to do? Yeah, look, um, I think, you know, there's so many things going on geopolitically, but I think actually this decade is going to really be about domestic uh, politics about domestic focus, not just in the U.S. Uh, or Europe, but also China, everywhere else. I think we're dealing with uh, uh, with the consequences of a pretty um, pretty disappointing cycle, where growth has been uh, very low, subdued, secular mm -hmm. stagnation, and now that's uh, all been compounded by the COVID nineteen uh, you know pandemic. So really, I'm I would say I'm spending more time thinking about how domestic politics has changed and how that's influencing the markets. You know, it's interesting that you you, you highlight the domestic dynamic because one of the things that I've struggled with is what I consider to be the relatively lazy narrative that the global financial crisis looked like the Great Depression, that it was, you know, the dynamics of the Great Depression. It just never made any sense to me in terms of thinking about it, other than it was, you know, the biggest financial crisis, the highest levels of unemployment, et cetera, that we'd seen in the United States. But it really didn't carry much of the characteristics of the Great Depression, right? We didn't see debt levels fall dramatically. We didn't see extraordinary levels of defaults or a restructuring of the financial system. In many ways, what we saw looked much more like the 1920s. And you've actually talked a little bit about this in your own dynamics, right? How, how do you think about what it means to turn back inwards and focus on stimulating the U.S. as compared to the rest of the world? Well, that goes back to your first question, you know, what have I been focusing on? You know, what are we all focusing on ultimately? We're trying to figure out uh, how to call the markets based on macro. I mean, what does that really mean? What it means to me is trying to figure out 10 years from now, when you look at this period, this year, what is going to be the issue that drove the markets, you know, the one issue. And I think ultimately macro investing is about that. It really comes down to figuring out what is the most important chart of the year and what is the directionality of that chart. And the reason I say that is because, you know, to answer your question, we have to really think about what just happened. And what just happened is an extraordinary fiscal response to, uh, you know, I don't want to think and a non-extraordinary event because obviously COVID-19 is a pretty extraordinary event. But the fact of the matter is we have wartime level of spending and no war. I mean, I think that's this is this is the the reality. 
And so what I think is the most important thing to really focus on is this transition that we're experiencing right now from the last 40 years of a context, a macro context that was defined by the Washington consensus, which is kind of a catch-all term for a lot of different policies. And we're transitioning to something new. And the speed with which we've done that this year has been extraordinary. And I think a lot of investors who were bearish missed it because they kept referring to, oh, we're going to have a Great Depression. You can't have a Great Depression. What was the Great Depression about? Great Depression was about policy. It was about going into a crisis and, as Treasury Secretary Mellon said, liquidating everything, right? It's like tightening the screws of pain on the American economy so as to cleanse you know, the system. That was the obsession they had at the time. So what they did is they countered a recession with austerity. They plowed government spending actually lower over the course of the first several years of, uh, of the recession. We, we do not have that this year. I mean, we have an extraordinary fiscal response. And I think getting that right requires a framework and a way of thinking about politics. Um, and I think that's, that's the most important thing that's going on right now. So what I call it, I call it the Buenos Aires consensus. We're moving away from the Washington consensus to this new consensus. All right. So, Marco, we had a brief interruption there as you had to change locations, get onto a wired Internet connection. So hopefully the sound is coming through better this time. Now everyone, by the way, gets to see the fantastic offices behind you at Drobny, uh, the Clock Tower Group. You introduced in some of your writings this idea of switching from the Washington consensus to the Buenos Aires consensus. Could you share what that means to you? What is the Buenos Aires consensus? It automatically draws you know, the mind to the idea of the dysfunctional dynamics of Argentina and populism. But what does that mean to you when you say that? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I mean, that's why I picked uh, Buenos Aires. It's supposed to evoke populism and dysfunction. Basically, I think getting the fiscal policy right this year was really about understanding what is the macro context, the political context that we live in. And the context we live in is such that the median voter just doesn't have any time for laissez-faire economics, has no time for fiscal prudence, has no time for all the things that made up the Washington consensus that we as investors have enjoyed, whether consciously or unconsciously, for the past 40 years. So what is the Washington consensus? To really define the Buenos Aires consensus, let's first define like the last 40 years. And the last 40 years have been um, really characterized from a policy standpoint by prudence, by technocratic uh, know-how, by supply-side economics. Reagan and Thatcher won, Francois Mitterrand failed. He lost. Uh, his policies were disastrous. Those of Reagan and Thatcher were extremely beneficial. So across the world, a set of policies was adopted. The catch-all term for those policies was the Washington Consensus. Why? Because, you know, IMF, World Bank, headquartered in yep. Washington, D.C., blah, blah, blah. Uh, and those policies were really about central bank independence, fiscal prudence. Fiscal policy uh, became apolitical. It was almost like, you know, counter-cyclical levers get pulled when needed. Uh, free trade, deregulation, privatization, um, and, and, you know, that was basically 
the underpinnings of this great 40 years for us. We as investors didn't have to care who won the elections for a long time. Left-wing uh, parties, right-wing parties, they all adopted the consensus of the time. That's why consensus is part of the term. Over the last 10 years, there's been clear evidence, especially in countries, uh, U.S. and the U.K., I would argue especially, uh, where there's been a move against this. It's, and it's really interesting because U.S. and the U.K. were the earliest adopters of kind of laissez-faire revolution uh, in the 80s, the supply-side economics. And uh, we've seen a steady move away from that. And in my view, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is a product of the median voter demanding a switch away from these prudent policies. If I had to really boil it down, I would say that the Washington consensus is about short-term pain for long-term gain. Washington consensus in some way is almost about a lack of democracy. It's non-democratic. It's about instituting these protocols that if you really ask people, they wouldn't want, like independent central banking. Why not have 0% interest rates forever? Why not? Like, what's what, I want that. Like, that's great. Um, why not have stimulative fiscal policy? Well, because in the long term, it's not a really good idea. So Washington consensus was all about that, you know, taking democracy out of these institutions, making them more de technocratic, instituting short-term pain for long-term gain. The Buenos Aires consensus is obviously the opposite. It's about democratizing many of these institutions, uh, and that's not a normative statement, that's pernicious. There's a negative consequence of that. Uh, and the negative consequence of that is that most people don't vote for short-term pain, long-term gain. They vote for short-term gain, right. long-term pain. Long-term so maybe. That's long-term maybe. Nobody votes for long-term pain, but they do say things tend to work out, right? We'll figure that out when we get there sort of thing, right? So it, it's interesting. I would frame this Washington to Buenos Aires slightly differently, right? I, you know, in my view, much of the 20th century was all about the politics of scarcity, right? You effectively needed to figure out how to address an exploding population growth and a continuous outward shift. You just think about it as each person consumes X quantity. That X quantity should theoretically grow with human productivity, and over the course of the 20th century, we added fantastic numbers of people to that equation, right? So demand functionally took care of itself, and the, the dynamics associated with the Great Depression were largely about how do we address the demand side of the equation, right? When you had a momentary hiccup and interruption associated with the financing dynamics and the credit contraction, when you had a hard money standard tied to gold, Right, the the Great Depression and the policies that emerged from that were all about demand smoothing, right, or demand enhancement, the growth of the government. The 1980s and beyond, what you you know, really mid 1970s and beyond, what you're referring to as the Washington Consensus, I would argue were all about the supply side of the equation, right? How do we, instead of focusing on managing the demand, let's give free reign, laissez-faire to the supply side of the equation to facilitate the production in China, the production in Taiwan, the production in Japan on a global basis and create an integrated market that's far more efficient, right? So while we see it differently, I share your view that what we're watching now is the transition to another system, right? And universal basic income, which we have a variant of today, it's, it's just another way of saying demand management, right? You're going to 
provide people with the tools that are required to smooth their demand function and recover their demand function. Do you think that necessarily means inflation? I mean, are, is, is inflation finally going to come back? Are we the boy who cried wolf at this stage that, that nobody actually believes it can happen and the time is now? Here's what I would say. I mean, you know, macro investing is all about that one chart yep. getting right, getting directionality right. So uh, let's let me answer that question through a chart. Okay. So uh, I brought a chart with me today. Um, I think this visualizes the Buenos Aires consensus. It's a chart uh, with only two lines. The gold line shows you the expansion of Federal Reserve assets. And the purple line is a very, very important line. I think that 90% of all investors missed the purple line. They actually don't know the purple line even exists. They kind of know it, but they ignore it. You got to show me the purple line now. Let's see the purple line. The purple line is government's contribution to GDP. You know, and the funny thing about that is that the reason most investors didn't like pay attention to that is because the last 10 years, it didn't really matter. You know, fiscal policy, other than the 2013 fiscal cliff, you know, we all kind of woke up and we're like, oh, no, here's a fiscal cliff. You know, that was it. For the most part, the fiscal side of the equation just like disappeared. And earlier this year, when COVID hit, a lot of people said, well, the Federal Reserve can't fill up the hole left over by the virus. Like you can't just print money. Um, and what I think people missed is that the Federal Reserve and expansion of its balance sheet is not what's really relevant right now. I mean, obviously, it's important because they're essentially monetizing debt and they're essentially, you know, ensuring that the fiscal side can work. But the fiscal is really the, the important part. And so the purple line shows you the difference between this cycle, the Buenos Aires cycle and the Washington consensus cycle. So last time around, um, we had stimulus. The American Recovery and Re uh, Reinvestment Act, ARA, was passed to the tune of $850 billion, uh, basically five months after the crisis began. And it was passed completely along party lines. In fact, in the entire Congress, House and the Senate, only three Republican senators, one of which like quit the Republican Party afterwards, uh, so really only two Republicans voted for this, uh, you know, now, when we look back at it, it's a comically small, modest stimulus bill. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, within 18 months, you had the 2010 midterm election, the Tea Party Revolution, where fiscal policy became something that, like, regular people talked about at dinner tables. Like, are we going to become Greece? And so we had a revolution, political revolution in the country, uh, in part based on you know fiscal prudence. And so we reverted back into austerity within like 18 months of the greatest uh, economic calamity since the Great Depression. And so you can see on the chart how quickly during the last cycle, the monetary stimulus was offset by fiscal austerity. Austerity became like the guardrails of monetary stimulus. And then this all switched in 2015-16, where the, you know, the, the Fed basically stopped growing its balance sheet, went into QT. Then President Trump got elected and he managed to push through a little bit of stimulus, like some stimulus. So you had constantly over the last cycle this sort of prudence about it. There were guardrails on any kind of stimulus. You're going to stimulate fiscally, we're going to pull back monetary support. You're going to have huge monetary uh, stimulus, we're going to pull back fiscal. I think that one of the reasons we didn't have inflation 
aside from the obviously already well-defined reasons like the balance sheet recession, Richard Kuh's argument, you know, uh, and, and the rest, repair of um, over-indebted households, we all understand that story. But the other side of the story is that fiscal policy just disappeared. Now, to many investors, this was normal. It was like prudent. It was like, of course it did. Government is bad. But hold on a second. GDP equation has a G in it for a reason. There's nothing non-fundamental about fiscal spending. Fiscal spending is not some, you know, tool that comes out of, you know, hell. It's not evil. It's part of the fundamentals. And for the last cycle, we had, and this is something most people don't know, we had the longest and deepest self-imposed period of austerity in the United States, but really globally too, other than in a few places. The longest and deepest period of self-imposed austerity. I'm not counting post war fiscal cliffs, which are kind of automatic fall off of fiscal spending after a war. What happened from 2010 to 2016 was the longest and deepest period during which that purple line on the chart I showed dipped negative. So the government was not contributing to GDP growth. So when, you know, like that's why I think last cycle, it was to me, it was clear that inflation was not going to hit. I was very fortunate to be schooled in macro by my former colleagues at BCA Research. Uh, we got that one right. We were, you know, deflationistas all the way through. And so now people say, well, what's different this time around? How is the Fed expanding the balance sheet going to make a difference? Well, it's because it's a completely different game. Look at the freaking chart. The purple line has gone through the roof. We have war-like level of fiscal spending. Yeah. We never got even close to that last cycle. So, as you know, we'd written on this dynamic and the the broader argument that people were making is, oh, my gosh, we have this incredible GDP collapse. Right. And they would quote GDP in annualized terms, right? 40 percent decline in GDP. Right. So, you know, when you when you're quoting that, just to be clear, that's like, you know, on a compounding basis, that's the equivalent of like an 8 percent decline in GDP. On the other side of it, you had a fiscal stimulus package that came through as we're talking in the trillions that, you know, was 15, 20% of GDP in absolute terms, right? So at least in the United States, you absolutely had a net expansionary dynamic. Now, what the multiplier associated with that government spending is, is, of course, debatable. Yeah, very. But, by but it's not zero. <laughs> it, it's not zero. And uh, I just had a conversation with Sri Tiravadantai of the, the Jacob Levy Forecasting Institute. You know, that stimulus for the first time was really targeted at the lower end, right? In particular, those who had lost their jobs with supplementary unemployment insurance, right? So money made its way into the hands of those who were most income constrained as compared to a tax credit or a tax cut, which tends to accrue to those who are much less income constrained by definition, right? So the spending impact of this has likely been huge. Now, my, my pushback a little bit is nothing dies easily, right? And so one of our hypotheses was that the speed of the response was in large part driven by the speed of the movement in asset prices, right? So as risk assets plunge, that creates a very compelling framework for uh, a, you know, a fiscal response, right? We have to do something because clearly the expectations channel, even though they don't use that language, as incorporated in risk assets is plunging. We're already starting to see austerity language return, right? We're, we're dramatically reducing the size of the unemployment insurance package. We're talking about making people get back to work again already. 
what's your reaction to that? Like, that's a great question. And this is why I start with the consensus. This is why I start with Buenos Aires consensus. You have to know what context you're in politically. And I think that we are so far gone from the last 40 years. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be holdouts. It doesn't mean that Mitch McConnell or Rand Paul or sort of, uh, you know, uh, Republican senators whose constituencies might be still fiscally conservative. It doesn't mean that they're not going to put up a fight, uh, but they're going to lose. And that's a high conviction. So let, let me let me tell you what's going to happen. Right now, we're, we're having this conversation. There's obviously a, a revolt in the Republican Party against a pretty tepid one trillion dollar package. I mean, relative to what's been passed. Yep. And it's great. It's a great experiment. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi is one of the most vicious and skilled politicians in the United States. Uh, and what she's done is she sniffed out where the median voter is in this country. So March, April of this year, no, February, March, most macro hedge fund managers that I spoke with thought, I mean, like universally, the consensus was that Nancy Pelosi would play politics and would not give Trump any fiscal stimulus. Um, But she's much smarter than that, you know, because she sniffed out where the median voter in the country is. So what she did is she just plowed right to that median voter. And the median voter is not a hedge fund manager. The median voter is basically on economic terms, on economic policy, in favor of left-leaning policies. Now, whether they're conservative socially, you know, that's great. Economically, I firmly believe the median voter is left-leaning in this country. So what Nancy Pelosi did is she drove this incredible, like, strategy of just saying more, 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 forcing Trump to essentially do what she's doing because now he's campaigning against her. So here's what's gonna happen if Mitch McConnell screws this up. Over the next three months, you're gonna hear nothing but campaign ads that Republicans try to cut your unemployment benefits. And then Trump's not gonna lose by 10%, he's gonna lose by 20%. And then next year, Joe Biden is not going to allow a 10, 12% fiscal cliff to happen. Of course not. I mean, he just beat Trump based on fiscal policy and thanks to Nancy Pelosi's left-leaning, you know, fiscal policy. So what he's going to do is he's going to ensure that in the first year of his presidency, he doesn't face a regular mathematically induced fiscal cliff recession. And that's how we actually get into this new consensus where we bid up the, the size of the fiscal stimulus, where we basically become not just an economy driven by fiscal stimulus, but also markets driven by fiscal stimulus. And so I would say that the pushback right now is not, um, it's not a sign that the thesis is wrong. I think it's natural that any new paradigm is opposed uh, by the guardians of the previous paradigm. Those Republican senators are putting up like a noble fight for fiscal prudence. I think they're gonna get massacred. And I think you're going to have a new administration later next year that's going to say like, well, if we stimulate it in 2020, we can stimulate again and avoid a fiscal cliff recession, which, by the way, is going to be something that I think the market's going to start obsessing over. And, and that's another interesting thing. You've got a situation where the probability of a blue wave is rising. You know, if you told if we had a discussion last last year and we started talking about what's the market implications of a democratic sweep of, of the House, Senate and the presidency. 
I think both of us would have agreed that it would have been probably negative for the market. So the market's going to start worrying about capital gains taxes going up, that corporate taxes and so on. The market has completely ignored the massive increase in probability of such an outcome. Why? Because the market's addicted to fiscal policy. And I think the market is looking through all the regulatory and tax challenges of a Biden presidency. And the market is saying, like, you know what? It's cool. It's cool with me. A Biden presidency combined with Democrats taking the Senate ensures that this fiscal tap continues. So it's interesting. And this may provide a good segue for us to talk about that dynamic of what the market price is in, what the market is addicted to. But so I, I share your view that Nancy Pelosi played this politically very well by deciding to go straight down the whatever you want, let's do more, right? Yeah. I struggle with the idea that Nancy Pelosi has become a throw caution to the wind spender. If anything, I would actually think that the policies that are being pursued, and you know, I have a, a penchant for referring to the Roman times, right? But, you know, if you think about the dynamics of the original populace, the guy, the, the Gracchi brothers, right? So Mar- um, uh, Tiberius and Gaius, right? Gaius was ultimately defeated for in a, in a run for consul um, when he... Uh, uh, was opposed by a chosen representative of the senatorial class who basically just promised everything under the sun and then didn't do any of it. It feels to me very much, and, and all I have to do is look at her ice cream collection to you know get insight into this, but at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi really is not a spend-it-all because she's too rich, right? She's just, she is not, she's from a class in which I just don't think that's going to happen. But I do agree with you that that's going to be the campaign strategy. Now, the other side of that campaign strategy, of course, is going to be coming from Trump. And Trump is running, ironically, as the law and order candidate against the chaos of the Democratic Party. And so that, to me, is the interesting question. Is America more of a law and order society, or do they care more about unemployment insurance? And I, I don't know the answer to that yet. I'm less confident in the Democratic sweep than you are, but I agree that the battle lines are being drawn along that framework. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, it's, it's too early to tell. I mean, things can yep. go wrong. I'm just pointing out that, you know, um, there will be a campaign against this Republican, uh, basically, package. But he- here's where I would kind of disagree with you. You know, my, yep. my framework for thinking about politics is um, that policymakers um, just try to win. And, uh, you know, like, wow, that's that's a really big, big claim there. Uh, they don't really, like, care about ideals. I mean, they do to an, to an extent – but they all believe that they can pursue their ideals if they want win first. And the reality is that that means, if you have that framework, it means that the median voter, which is of course a theoretical concept, is the price maker in the political marketplace. This is really important for, for my way of thinking. The median voter is the price maker. The politician is the price taker. And what that means is that getting the median voter right will tell you what zeitgeist, what consensus you're in. And what's happened in the U.S. over the last decade is two things. First of all, 
the U.S. has, on a lot of measures of income inequality, social mobility, blah, 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 relative to its peers in the developed world, you know, really uh, skewed to one way. And the Great Recession in 2008 has exacerbated some of those inequalities. And so people are starting to feel that. Uh, there's this great chart the OECD did that shows that the U.S. has a very high median income, but middle income as share of total population, it's pretty low. It's at basically 50 percent. We're at right there at 50% in the US. Um, and the other issue that I think is very important is that this new generational cohort, millennials and Gen Z, as we all know, have particularly been you know, impacted negatively. And that's a problem in 2020 because they are now also the median voter. So it's for the first time in US history uh, that a millennial is now the median voter. So when you put all of that together, I think it doesn't matter whether Nancy Pelosi is rich or whether this or that. I think politicians of both parties are simply going to respond to the preferences, policy preferences of the median voter. And if they don't, they're going to, you know, so they're going to compete who's going to get closer to the median voter with their policies. And so I don't think that we're really going to have the moment that we had last cycle. Last cycle, the Tea Party moment came, as I said, 18 months into the recession. There was a revolt against profligacy basically by middle of 2010. I think this time around, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it in the U.S. And if you don't see it in the U.S., you know what's going to happen. If the U.S. doesn't stand as a bulwark, bulwark as a champion of laissez-faire and the Washington consensus, policymakers in Germany or Japan or China or everywhere else are going to look around and say, like, well, hell, if the country of Ronald Reagan is, you know, just spending like crazy, we're going to do some of that, too. So that's why I think that's the zeitgeist we're in. And I don't think the media voters are really going to change. I think politicians next year are going to surprise you. I think I think this fiscal is going to last a lot longer than we think. I don't think central banks are going to uh, raise interest rates at the first sign of inflation. I think we're going to play this out much longer. And that's where the inflation, to go back to your original question, that's where I think the inflationary pressures are going to build up. So it's going to be interesting. And, and, and again, I actually agree with you that that purple line, the idea that government spending as a share of GDP is going to become increasingly important. I, I completely agree with that. I don't think it's going to be as smooth a transition as as you're suggesting. And I know you're not really suggesting it's going to be you know truly smooth, but I, I agree with you. The arrow is moving in that way. I would, again, frame it slightly differently, right? We have an environment in which growth is perceived as a prerequisite and we are increasingly living in a demand constrained world simply by population dynamics right it's just it's just not the same underlying characteristic let's let's veer off for a second though and let's talk about another demand constrained environment in which you're more positive than most let's talk about europe how does europe fit into this world which under any form of consensus Right. You are by definition saying that there are going to be multiple powers at the party that whose voice matters. They have to come to some form of an agreement. You suggest that Europe could be a model. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, let me put it this way. <clears throat> I think the biggest mistake investors, commentators, whoever has made on Europe is that they have this perception that Europe is creating a super state because it wants to challenge the U.S., now, in large part, uh, this is a product of Europe's own PR machine, mm -hmm. which throughout the 1990s and 2000s, through think tanks, through academic work, kind of pumped out this like, wow, we're something new, we're awesome, 
Uh, here comes the euro. Watch out the dollar. You know, so there was a lot of that kind of chest beating uh, in the early 2000s uh, and the 90s. Um, and then, of course, it all blew up. And then a lot of commentators, um, you know, said, well, this euro state, uh, Europe super state is stupid. It's pernicious. It's going to subjugate, you know, the common man to uh, supranational sovereignty laws, blah, 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 all this stuff. Uh, and so it's uh, it's a silly project that will end. But the reality is that Europe is not uniting out of some sort of arrogance or strength. European countries are uniting or passing sovereignty to a, a supranational level out of fear and out of weakness. And this is because the world we live in today is a world of great powers. I think the analogy is not the Cold War. I think the analogy is the 19th, late 19th century. And it's a world in which a country like Germany or definitely Italy or Spain are really irrelevant. Like in a world where Russia, China, India, Iran, United States have a seat at the table. This is, there's no room for Italy. You know, it's not 1908. And this is a world in which European countries actually have a geopolitical imperative to continue to integrate. Europe is really uniting out of weakness. And it's very similar to what, you know, the reason that Switzerland exists as a country, even the original 13 colonies of the United States, I'm not sure they would have necessarily formed a federal union. Maybe confederacy would have been uh, sufficient had there not been that imminent threat of an invasion by the United Kingdom to repossess its colonies. Right. Well, so, and that's and, and that's explicit. I mean, just very quickly, the Benjamin Franklin proposal for the flag of the United States was the unite or die, right? The don't tread on me rattlesnake. If it's cut into pieces, it's harmless. If it's together, you don't want to step on it, right? Yeah. So, so I actually agree with you on that. I do think that the challenge for Europe is that for, you know, to, to be totally frank, it is actually not a continent, right? It is a peninsula on a continent, Eurasia, right? And unless it turns itself into scale, it has no defense barring the United States scale. willing to step in. Such an important word and concept in the 21st century. My dietitian would agree, by the way. But yeah, <laughs> you know, scale doesn't matter in a globalized world. This is, this is so. This is something that a lot of people mistake. They say, "Well, globalization is ending, so entities such as the European Union have to collapse." No, false, false. A country like Slovenia, for example, and you know, I'm from former Yugoslavia. I'm a Serb. I'm not trying to say anything disparaging against Slovenia. Wonderful country. However. A country of 1.2 million people nestled next to the Alps makes absolutely no sense other than in a globalized world where Slovenian manufacturers, exporters, service companies can access markets without any friction around the world. But in a world of large you know, states that protect their markets, suddenly that scale really does matter. And that's why countries like Slovenia or Italy or Spain, they require economies of scale in a world that's deglobalizing, where accessing America's or Chinese market may no longer be a fait accompli. You suddenly need to sign some sort of a document that does usurp your sovereignty, where you do lose a piece of that in order to have access to the French or German market or, or, and so on. And that's why a deglobalized world is a world perfect for the European Union. European Union was almost designed for it. It's actually in many ways a very protectionist uh, economic bloc uh, that has a geopolitical logic. And that logic is strengthening. It's not weakening. 
Uh, and then, of course, the Trump administration, I think, you know, they give out this Charlemagne Prize. I don't know if you know every year to like the person who has united or helped unify the EU the most. I think Donald Trump should get it. Should get it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, because because he there was this famous, you know, G7 summit in Sicily, after which um, Angela Merkel got on a plane, flew straight to Bavaria, straight to a beer hall where the Christian Social Union, the CSU, sister party of the CDU, tends to be Eurosceptic. She walked right in there and told him, like, look, I want you all to shut up. I'm paraphrasing. No more Euroscepticism out of you. We're on our own. We're integrating with Italians, period, because I saw the future and the Americans are no longer on our side. So I think in this in this world, this 21st century, and this is something that I saw 10 years ago, you know, I've always had a very... Uh, I've always been biased towards Europeans will deal with every crisis with more integration. Now, there's two things that you have to ask on that question. One, do the plebs agree? You know, does the, you know, salt of the earth European character, uh, does that voter really care about geopolitics and like, you know, these concepts that we're talking about? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, if you look at the polling in Europe, since the euro area crisis, there's been a steady increase in support for, for example, the monetary union which Euroskeptics just ignored this data because I don't know why. And then on the other hand, you've got this steady decline in confidence that these countries could actually exist outside of the EU and prosper. Now, the one country that's been an outlier on both is Italy. I think over the next year, two, three, four, five, Italy will likely have a bout of populism again. I think each one of these bouts is a reason to buy European assets because ultimately Italians will simply renegotiate. They're not going to actually leave. Italy outside of the European Union just doesn't make sense. Uh, and, I, and in my experience, it's been clear that Italian voters understand that. So long term, I think Europe stays together. The question for us as investors, of course, is so what? Are you going to buy European assets just because of this? I think at this particular moment, the answer is yes. I think we have global reflation. China is stimulating. Europe is a high kind of beta play. Um, it's a price taker from a global macro perspective. And I think it's going to do well over the next 12 uh, to 36 months. I do also think that the Euro could increase as a share of reserve currency, not replace the US in any way. It can go from like 20% of reserve currency to like 25, 30 maybe, which is substantial increase. So yeah, I do think the next decade we'll see European assets show a little bit more life, um, but I don't think that you know the EU is the next global power or anything like that. So I completely agree with what you're saying. I do think that there's a stochastic component to it, right? There are decisions that get made along that path. Um, I think most people tend to think about it in the framework, and and you have heard me say this before, that most people th think about what's happening in the United States as the end of the empire, right? You know, et cetera. I, to me, this is so transparent that it's the opposite, that this is actually the rise of the American empire. And in response to the rise of the American empire, Europe has to integrate. Like There's just no question about it. If the U.S. is no longer the purely magnanimous player who says, well, we're going to lift everybody up to reduce the costs of being the global policeman. If the U.S. turns inward, the natural impulse for Europe is we have to band together. Right. So I, I completely agree with you. And I think your analogy to Slovenia is very powerful. Right. People like to make fun of Americans for not being able to find countries on a map. 
I wonder how many Europeans could actually find Rhode Island on a map, right? It's um, it's it's the exact same logic and the exact same dynamic. You know what I would say? One thing to also add to this calculus is just to to what extent a lot of institutional investors care about the long term longevity of a project. So I was surprised. You know, I've as you pointed out for basically the last decade, I've probably been the most extreme in terms of a very high probability forecast that Europe would not fall apart. And yet I was somewhat skeptical of this latest Macron-Merkel plan. You know, okay, I never thought it was that big of a deal because I don't think they actually need to do this to continue to integrate. Um, But okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's marginally positive, blah, blah, blah. Is it a huge game changer? I understand they're creating a new security and so on. It's, it's, It's not bad. But I was surprised, Mike, by how many institutional investors thought this was the game changer. And, you know, um, I sort of laughed. I had this great conversation with by, uh, with, a, with a great great investor, really sophisticated. And I said, well, look, guys, the only reason you would think this is a game changer is if you had a view that Europe would fall apart. And there was right. silence on the other side. It was like, yes, that's literally the view we had. And now we don't have that view anymore. And I think that's right. important. I think it's important to understand that there's a lot of institutional investors around the world for whom the messaging of this year was truly important. Maybe it's not important to you, maybe not to me. Um, and you know, you're seeing a lot of longtime Euroskeptics skeptics like capitulate um, and write op-eds about how this is a big deal. So I think that that could provide a tailwind to European assets as well. So that gives us an opportunity to start talking about assets for a second. And um, you know, let's run through them very quickly. So you mentioned the idea that the euro could gain share as a reserve asset. That would bias you towards a positive outlook on the euro, I would assume. Is yep. that is that fair? Okay. Gold. And a negative towards the dollar for a number and of a negative towards the dollar. Yeah. Okay. Gold. What do oh, you think absolutely. about gold? No, I mean, I've been positive in gold since last year uh-huh. because I've, I've had the view of the Buenos Aires consensus since yep. last and And the obvious natural outcome if you have that kind of a view. So just, just so you know, the the inception of the view was that we would have a recession in 2020. Obviously, I didn't expect a biblical downturn because of a you know plague, um, but we did get a recession. And, and so the reason that we've had a clock tower, this view of the Buenos Aires consensus, is because we were trying to predict what the policy response to the next recession would be. Um, and as such, you know, we had naturally a very a bullish outlook towards gold. I think gold can can keep keep going up. Um, that that's an asset that will do very well. The converse of that is that we're probably entering a um, you know dollar bear market, which is fine. Like it happens often. Doesn't mean the end of America. If if American assets underperform for a decade, it has happened before. <laughs> um, and so yes, I would be biased against the dollar and and towards gold. So I share that view. My general view on gold has been it would be what is next, right? As you're coming out the other side of it. Um, when you're thinking about equity markets though do you think or and let's talk bond markets as well right so just very quickly when you talk about buying assets in europe my pushback would be that makes a ton of sense if you're talking italian bonds right i'm not quite sure that that means that you should go out and buy sap right or that you should go out and buy daimler chrysler or or not daimler chrysler anymore daimler right yeah like i i wonder how much europe is the equity component of europe relies on globalization, in particular access to a growing Chinese market. And if that's a very different statement than the growth of 
government spending as a percentage of GDP. Effectively, the idea that Europe needs to provide an internal source of demand for the products that it's scaled up to produce on a global basis. How would you react to the, that distinction? I think Europe will be fine. I mean, it's uh, it's obviously, as you're pointing out, skewed towards cyclicals. And I think that uh, if we have this basically new cycle, uh, one that will require some rewiring of global supply chains, you want to be in companies that, that deal with CapEx. Uh, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, East Africa, they're not going to replace China without building up some infrastructure, without building up some factories. Uh, you're not going to change the supply chain in um, semiconductors uh, without buying some, you know, Dutch semiconductor machine that like actually fabricate them. So there are, I think, European cyclical companies that are going to do all right over the next um, over the next decade. So effectively, the capital spending components of the companies in Europe, you think, will will benefit, right? And, so. And, and, and like the deglobalization story, it's interesting. I mean, Europe is uh, probably stands to benefit from here because Europe gets to play both sides, you know, and it's going to be very difficult for the United States to enforce uh, European compliance to its kind of position on China. This is, uh, you know, something we can talk about as well. But I think that Europe is going to basically play both sides and it's going to get to still benefit from either Chinese demand or the rewiring of supply chains that will again require some of this these cyclical companies to provide, uh, you know, to get revenue from the rewiring. So the rewiring of supply chains, a lot of investors look at it as a very negative. You know, it's negative to like multinational corporations that have the that have depended on those supply chains, but from a sort of a, you know global outlook on growth, it's not a bad thing that we're going to rewire the supply chain. In fact, the last time we did it, from 2001 to 2008, when China entered the WTO, that was hugely beneficial for Europe, emerging markets, and other cyclicals and commodities. The industrialization of China and the rewiring of supply chains to include China as a central cog in our supply chain was very uh, beneficial for sort of cyclicals, commodities, and so on. Rewiring away from China could, again, be as beneficial to those companies. Now, again, S&P 500 that are already stuck with the supply chain, they might be hurt because they have to dip into their revenues, profit margins to rewire their own um, uh, supply chains. But that's not necessarily bad for uh, Europe, which could participate in the rewiring. So let's push on that for a second, because this naturally leads us to the discussion of China, which you know you and I have, I think, a lot of shared views, but also some some pretty stark differences. So one of the areas that I see very clearly is, is that the U.S. wants to pull away from China. But that's very hard, right? Disaggregate, separating the, you know, the, uh, the tangled knots that combine U.S. corporate sector investments in China, uh, the supply chain components associated with China, that's harder than simply saying we're no longer going to do this. Does the detente between the U.S. and China, where the two hate each other but need each other basically to exist, does that slow the process of supply chain diversification? I mean, because if Vietnam is going to get the new supply chain or Europe is going to get the new supply chain um, and it's not, and the U.S. is going to build a new supply chain so that it's not reliant on elsewhere in the world automating much of it, like the natural loser seems to be China, but 
you're more sanguine about that transition process. I just wonder if this takes longer than people think it could. I'm not sure I disagree with anything you said. Okay. I mean, I think I think uh, I think China is clearly trying to like what the Chinese are actually doing right now is they're opening up their economy. Uh, they're trying to uh, you know invite more investment in their capital markets. They're trying to redo their capital markets. I think they understand themselves that they're going to have to move away from some of the manufacturing, whether for political or geopolitical reasons or because they want to move up up the value chain. It's all kind of par for the course. So, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I do think it will take longer. It will be happening. As it's happening, uh, a company in Vietnam is going to have to buy machines from Germany, from the Netherlands. Um, it's going to be a slow process, just like the Chinese industrialization was. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to be happening. I have a slightly different view, which is ultimately, I think, part of what the U.S. has engaged in is a process of goading China into acting too early. Actually, my, my view is, is that Russia played this role previously. Effectively, Putin's geopolitical genius, I mean, playing the game better than anyone else, in my opinion. He might even be Serbian, who knows. I'm not sure we've done very well over the last 30 years. Uh, relative to the land area, you probably produce more. Um, the pushback that I would have on China is it feels like China got played. Mm -hmm. right? That China, basically, Putin in particular, whispered in their ear, hey, between the two of us, we can take the Americans. right? And China moved too quickly. Now, whether they were forced because of demographics or whether they really misunderstood their geopolitical positioning it feels like they made a move that called them out to the world and the rest of the world has woken up pretty aggressively to this. So I think that if they listened to anyone, it might have been Financial Times op-eds. Uh -huh. you, know, you want to talk about consensuses by Buenos Aires, Washington? I mean, remember 2009, 2010, there's a lot of talk of the Beijing consensus. And I think, um, you know, I mean, Putin kind of made the same move as well. I mean, he did invade Georgia in August of 2008. He, you know, intervened in Ukraine in 2014. So a lot of countries took the last decade to be the decade of like American decline. <clears throat> and so I think, uh, I think that there is something to say that China moved too quickly. And there seems to be right now a policy uh, sort of setting in China to not to respond to the Trump administration with any kind of you know, real increase in uh, tensions. So while, you know, there's tit for tat that's going on, China seems to be complying to the extent that it can with phase one of the trade deal. Um, and the second of all, I mean, again, it's opening up domestic economy uh, in part because it needs foreign investors uh, to go in and, you know, professionalize the capital markets that it's trying to build. If that is truly the setting of, Chinese policy for the next decade, then it means that China is taking a step back and uh, reassessing uh, the last de decade of aggressive foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. And so I think that a lot of investors will be surprised by just how muted China will be over the next decade. I mean, there's some red lines they're not going to, you know, uh, they're not going to cross or just some red lines they're not going to uh, compromise, obviously, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Um, internal security, um, but they are actually opening up much more to foreign investment. And if you are doing that, you also can't be uh, aggressive globally because that will obviously uh, negatively impact the domestic reforms 
that you're trying, trying to pursue. And so what does that mean? It means that we're in a world, you know, that I don't think is going to bifurcate cleanly. It's a very sort of dramatic binary view. I think we're going to be in the 19th century, as I said earlier. I think it's a world where it's very messy and where the U.S. and China are two of the great powers that are playing this game. But if we look at the 19th century, we know the outcome of that world. It's a world where there's still investment, there's still trade between great powers. It's the world of the 19th century, effectively, uh, an environment in which not only are you dealing with geopolitical dynamics, right? How, how, who is the enemy of my enemy? How do I sign alliances, right? The types of dynamics and, and entangling uh, ties that led to, unfortunately, the World War I component, right? Where you, you construct those. But it also was a period of significant internal turmoil, right? Many of the actions that we're describing that were taken in the 19th century were a byproduct of the extraordinary emigration that occurred where populations were flowing to the new world and systems had to be restructured. You know, you could no longer rely on your children to take care of you if they had left and gone to America, right? Um, you know, those types of dynamics, I, I tend to agree with you, are underway. I would suggest that the, uh, you know, the Giet Jean, uh, et cetera, in France are an indication of this, that the protests that exist in China are an indication of these types of internal pressures as people are basically coming to grips with the idea of, you know, I, I may be stuck in a low growth or no growth environment. How do I secure my position relative to my neighbor as much as to uh, some foreign power, right? And of course, the natural byproduct of that is to try to externalize the risks and threats, right? So it's very natural that the U.S. is now very aggressively saying, well, China is the problem, right? Yeah. Because it allows us to distract. Do you think if that's the case, though, that ultimately we move slowly and inexorably towards conflict? Like, is this, you know, the detente that you're describing, is it the warming up act effectively? I wouldn't describe it as a detente at all. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I've been an alarmist on U.S.-China, you know, longer than most people were looking at that relationship. So, you know, and, and so I don't think that uh, things are going to necessarily get better geopolitically. The two countries are clearly moving in different directions. China clearly sees itself as a, not a revanchist power. It doesn't see itself as a rising power. China sees itself as one of the global powers that right. took 150, 200 year kind of timeout from yep. its, you know, traditional role. And so it sees America as, as the challenger power. And so what I would say is that um, we have to separate the geopolitical conflict from the economic and uh, investment implications, first of all. We have to also uh, free ourselves of the trap of the Cold War, of the linear extrapolation of the only example of conflict that any of us really know. Because we've, we, many of us who are investors kind of grew up in the tail end of the Cold War or experienced it as investors. So that's like our mindset. Oh, China, US, boom, Cold War. But the problem with that is that after World War II, you know, Europe was completely decimated. Japan had two nuclear bombs thrown at it. China was uh, exiting like two decades of vicious warfare, whether uh, versus Japan or Internally, yeah, right. Yeah, so the only two powers in 1945 were the Soviet Union and the United States. The context was bipolar, and a bipolar context is very important. 
There's a lot of research in political science where they gamed out the implications for trade and investment using game theory. It's very boring stuff. If anybody wants to you know, read this stuff, I can send it to you. But the bottom line here is that a bipolar context produces these very clean camps, you know, very segregated, uh, bifurcated outcomes. No trade, no investment. Uh, and it's a world where the Soviet Union and the United States can keep their allies more or less in check with small you know, deviations here and there, like France pulling out of NATO troops and so on. But for the most part, these two camps are bulletproof. They're hermetically sealed. Um, today, we don't live in that world. We live in a very messy world. It's a world where the United States is clearly still the strongest country in the world geopolitically. China is clearly the second. But then you have a mess. You have a lot of countries that can pursue their geopolitical economic interests independent of one another. And that multipolar context has real implications for how the enmity between China and the U.S. will articulate itself from an investment perspective. Namely, it's going to be impossible for the U.S. to keep its allies in line. Let me give you an example that happened in July. Mike Pompeo made what many think is a fundamental historical speech. He called for an alliance of democracies in the Nixon library against China. Right, got a lot of press. Mm -hmm. Next week, he has the Australian delegation. This happened yesterday on July 28th. He had Australian delegation, high-level delegation come to the United States. Now, Australia is an important country because it's a natural ally of the U.S. I mean, it's a country on the front line of this China-U.S. rivalry. If any country was going to show up in the U.S. and say, like, look, you know, we're with you, it would be Australia. It requires American uh, defense in order to properly sort of protect its sovereignty, given its close linkages with China. And the Australians said, sorry, you know, sorry, mate, we're going to we're going to keep trading with China. It's, it's, it's important. We'll deal with you on some issues, but we're not going to uh, join this you know, coalition. I mean, if Australia said no, of course, the Germans and the French who don't really see China as a geopolitical threat, of course, they're not going to join the American coalition. And this is really important. Because if America can't keep its allies in line, it means that they will stab the U.S. in the back in order to get revenues from China. Airbus will pick up the slack that Boeing leaves on the table by pulling out of China. And that's, I think, the real critical issue, because what we know from history is that when you have this kind of a multipolar context where allies can't keep each other in line, they capitulate and they trade with the enemy. So I, I brought you two charts. One is from the uh, late 19th century. The other one is from the 30s. Uh, the one from the 19th century shows that the United Kingdom uh, traded with Germany right up until the start of World War One. And I could have also shown you French trade with Germany, Russian trade with Germany. These were three countries, the Triple Entente. They were basically allied defensively against Germany. And they all expected for 20 years before World War One, everybody knew there would be a war. Like everybody was planning for this. And yet they traded with Germany. Why? Because if the UK didn't protect its commercial interests, its ally France would have just picked up that revenue um, that UK left on the table. Similarly, the other chart is the US and Japan. US knew from early in the 1930s that Japan was a rising power in the Pacific and it would eventually be a geopolitical threat. And yet trade with Japan basically stayed the same for a very long time. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to disentangle for China 
because it can't control its allies the way it did in a bipolar context. And this is something that I think we need to do as investors. We need to have a very sophisticated view of geopolitics, not just in understanding like China, U.S. don't like each other, the city trap and all this stuff, but understanding that the macro geopolitical context influences outcomes. Whether we're in a bipolar world or a multipolar world will influence the, you know, how these things play out. Whether we're in the Washington consensus or Buenos Aires consensus will influence how policymakers react. These these big picture macro contexts matter, just like they matter in economics. They also matter in geopolitics. Well, I would I would also just characterize what you're describing though as distributions that are non-normal or. Um, you know, rates of decay that are non-consistent, right? It would be somewhat absurd to look at trade between the United States and Japan and expect to see this long, slow disengagement where it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you decide to fight a war, right? I mean, you know, it's it's a marriage. A marriage ends in divorce, right? It doesn't end with, you know, you deciding that you're, uh, you know, slowly going to separate. I'm going to spend five days a week at home and then four days a week at home and then three days a week. Like it just doesn't work that way. Right. That's a great point. There's yeah. a, there, there's a, a, a terminus associated with it, but the environment that we're creating is one in which the catalyst required for that will only emerge when it does. Right. Is it that the U S delivers a stinging rebuke to China that causes China to withdraw from the United Nations? I I, I don't know. Right. I mean, that's well, the, I'm using the example Taiwan, of Japan, right? Yeah, no, I think Taiwan would be, probably the most obvious point of contention and and I personally so it's it's ironic because I have this view of trade and investing uh, that's that's I think most people will characterize as very bullish very hopeful very optimistic on the other hand I would say that the probability of a military conflict uh, in South China Sea or or over Taiwan is is actually quite high the problem, I would say, between 10 and 20 percent. And, and right. by the way, no geopolitical strategist would say anything of that sort. So then how do you what do you do with that? What do you do with those two views? Well, I think that investors, you know, so many investors want to not buy the S&P 500 because of China, U.S. And I'm saying that's 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 nuts. Expecting the uh, S&P 500 to fall down 20 percent because China and U.S. are engaged in what will be a multi-decade long rivalry. I mean, this is the world you live in. <laughs> you know, it's it's like not buying S and P five hundred because the Soviet Union has twenty thousand nukes pointed at, at the U S. However, the high probability of an accident or a miscalculation or a conflict means that you have to position your portfolio to have some hedges uh, that are always in there. Whether that's gold, whether that's owning you know defense stocks, whether that's owning uh, semiconductor capex plays. Because if there's a conflict over Taiwan, you're going to have to rebuild these, um, you know, fabs somewhere else. Whatever that is, it should be part of your portfolio. It's just that you cannot actually bet on the S&P 500 uh, going up or down based on this relationship. It's the world we live in today. It's the soup that we're swimming in. Um, and the S&P 500 will, has, I think, already learned to deal with the new conflict that we have. So I... Um, this actually now transitions into the last point that I wanted to talk about, because you're obviously familiar with the work that we've done on passive. And the normal way to think about that type of uncertainty is that discount rates should be rising, right? Effectively, there are bimodal distributions. I don't know if we're going to, to separate. I don't know if we're going to continue. If we're going to continue, we're likely to continue in this world of rising government stimulus, which is a 
uh, transfer to the private sector balance sheet. And so in some some ways, those companies, S&P 500 would be a good example, that are best positioned to capture that increase in income that's coming from the government sector should be positioned to outperform, right? But we should see rising discount rates if people are actually thinking about that, right? Part of my problem is, as I look at the structure of markets, I'm increasingly convinced that that type of discounting mechanism is breaking, right? That it's being driven by the passive dynamics. And so when we look to the S&P to give us the probability of a violent event in Taiwan that could lead to a rapid severing and significant change in the manner that you're describing, it's not going to give it to us, right? And so I think that's part of the reason I, I tend to share your probability of conflict in Taiwan. I think it's actually extraordinarily high in the context of these things. And everyone should understand that nobody in the geopolitical space would ever say a 51% chance or an 80% chance of that sort of thing happening, right? But 20% is extraordinarily high. You would expect to see that in a much higher discount rate for companies that have significant operations in Taiwan and the Western world or that are exposed in various ways. ASML in, in uh, the Netherlands is, would, would have a slightly different dynamic, right? You would expect to see that benefit, although it would lose many of its high margin service contracts. So, I mean, there's, there, there's a million different pieces that could be moving there. Regardless, we would expect to see that higher discount rate. We're not seeing it. And my concern is, just like we saw in March, the speed of the response driven by financial markets that clearly were not actually discounting anything because they're now right back above. Are we being misled because that discounting no longer happens in, in financial markets? I mean, you know, you know that better than I do. I think you make a very, very strong case in your research that that's exactly where we are. Um, and that that means both ways, you know, that means that both we're not accounting for risks, but it also means when something does happen, the moves are more violent. Yeah, I think that's right. That's unfortunately the conclusion I come to as well. But I'm not sure or, it's unfortunate, though. You know, if well, I just, it's it depends on whose shoes you're wearing, right? If you're wearing my shoes, I think it's an opportunity. Uh, there was an exchange on Twitter I had the other day where somebody said, uh, you know, I find the current macro environment like incredibly boring. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, like, how could you possibly think this? Can't you feel the tension? Right. This is, you know, this is what makes macro fun. I, I think it is a huge opportunity, you know, and, and one of the things that makes it a huge opportunity is that I do think that social media has corrupted like too many people and including extremely sophisticated investors. Um, so basically, people have come to this um, conclusion I think they wouldn't admit it, but they have, that Twitter is real life, you know. So I'll give you an example from politics. Last year, um, I was uh, one of the early, uh, I, I never sold my condo on Biden Island ever. Uh, there was a moment when I timeshared it out to people, you know, but like I kept it. I kept my condo on Biden Island uh, from early 2019. I thought he was going to win the nomination. And I thought that he was a front runner actually against Trump. Now, I literally found like two human beings who agreed with me last year. And it's it's inconceivable that people thought that he wasn't going to win the Democratic. I'm not saying everybody should agree with this view, but he had a polling lead for most of the campaign, you know. But that's because people just took the view from Twitter. Like there's no way that Joe Biden can win. Twitter hates him. Well, guess what? Twitter's not the real world. Similarly, I think earlier this year with uh, the COVID crisis, I mean, March, 
February, March, people were talking about like Spanish flu. They were talking about this or that. Largely, that was fed by social media. Obviously, the loudest voices rose to the top. So I think that we live in a world where investment narratives are accelerated by social media and they have larger amplitude in terms of impact on the markets. But I think their half-life is much shorter than it has been in the past. So if you and I were in the 1970s investors, um, like I don't know how many op-eds in the Wall Street Journal we would have needed to read before we changed our view. Like we would have played squash, then we would have had like breakfast, we would have opened up the Wall Street Journal, we would have read one, maybe talked a few times. You know, this would have been a long process. Now you get like 17 tweets, you freak out, you sell, you buy. Uh, and so I think that what's happening is that we are getting these narrative accelerants, but those narratives can also dissipate very quickly. And I absolutely think that this is a great environment to be an active investor. Unfortunately, you know, I share the view that it's a great opportunity to be an active investor. I, I would actually argue that what you're saying on social media is more of a desensitization. Right? And so if anything, I'm seeing people less willing to trade on that information. Part of that is because of the dynamics of what we've seen in the markets themselves. But part of it is actually an awareness of exactly what you're saying, which is, I think, oddly, people are increasingly aware that they're operating in a social media bubble, right? That the information that they're receiving tends to be confirmation as compared to new information, right? And if you really don't like someone, um, if you don't like the message that they're giving you, you just mute them or block them, right? And so you no longer receive that discordant information. If anything, to me, it feels like people are reacting less mm. as compared to reacting more. Um, you know, it, it goes back to the, the comment that I picked up, right. Which for me was negative confirmation bias, right. That this is a boring macro environment, right. I mean, I look at it and I'm just like, Oh my God, how could like, you know, how could this be more crazy? Um, I can only think of a few ways, most of which involve various planes flying over Taiwan, but I think we're being desensitized. Right. And I, 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 I could be wrong on that, but I think eventually we will be, yeah. um, Maybe I'm just further through it. I'm just getting older and I feel desensitized relative to being young and, and passionate like my young Serb friends. Um, Marco, this was fantastic. We have, have used up all of the allotted time. I really appreciate your joining us again. Um, if people want to follow your work, is there a way that the public has access? I know that you've actually just written a book, and so that's expected to come out soon. You've made the individual chapters available as they've been published in uh, classic Steve Drobny form. Maybe you can give people some information so they can get access to your to what you've written and your thoughts. So no, uh, uh, at Clock Tower, my job is to uh, really work very closely with our investors. Uh, so that's where most of the research goes to. But the book will be available in October, and next time I come on, we can talk about it. It's called Geopolitical Alpha, and you can actually pre-order it on Amazon. So there's a little plug there. Uh, and next time I come on, we can talk about that. So the book is coming out in October, and are you active in social media? I know we just talked about Twitter. No, I'm not. Uh, not at all. I mean, I don't. I don't use it for information, and I don't really post anything. Um, occasionally, maybe I've done something in the past uh, on LinkedIn. Just a couple of videos you can watch of me giving a talk, but no, um, I'm not really available anywhere um, except the book and right. Real Vision, of course. And Real Vision. 
So listen, we'll do this again in about six months. Um, after uh, your book comes out in October, we'll try to get you on. And hopefully uh, you can join me at a couple of Real Vision events. I would really love to have you there and, and have you speak in person. Absolutely. It's Fantastic. a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again, Mike. It's uh, and, and thank you to Real Vision as well. All right. Take care, Marco. All the best. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.